Hey guys, welcome to episode 163 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope all is well and that you are in the mood for some true crime in our most favorite of months, October. We also wanted to thank everyone who has submitted their spooky stories to us for our listener episode this month. If you have a story and you want to share it, you have one week left to submit any true crime or paranormal stories to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. Honestly, all of the other stories have completely scared the crap out of me, so I am really excited to see what this year has in store for us. I'm excited, too. I always get a kick out of them. And I always love like getting the ones that I know are going to scare John. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> also, if you've joined Patreon recently, we will be thanking you at the end of this episode. So without any further delay, John, do you want to hear something crazy? Of course. Usually here at the beginning of the episode, I talk to you about the community in which the crime at the center of this episode took place. But in this case, that is something that has proven difficult to do. Hollinsburg, Indiana, has very limited information. In a federal writer's project from 1936, author of the document Jerry Kirk from Terrahue stated that the town was named after a minister from Kentucky that built the first home in the area. He noted that no distinguished persons or families lived there. No houses from an architectural point of view stood out. The town had a general store, two garages, no schools, no churches, nor hospitals, colleges, libraries, or museums. The majority of people that lived there were farmers and worked hard for a living and stayed mostly to themselves. At the time, the population was only 50. And at the time of our crime, in 1977, it wasn't much higher. Hollinsburg, Indiana, is known for one thing and one thing only. It is a Hoosier town haunted by past events. It will forever be associated with a fleeting moment in time in 1977 when horror descended on the small rural community. And while you cannot find the census of the town or a website, you can surely learn a lot about the Hollinsburg Massacre. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On Sunday the 13th of February, 1977, the news broadcasters were doing nothing but talking about an ominous snowstorm headed their way, sure to cancel any and all plans that had been made for Valentine's Day. And that was why Charlie Bollinger's mother had called the Spencer residence. Her son had spent the weekend at his friend Reeves' house and had planned to sleep over that night as well. And the two 16-year-old boys were going to head to school together that following Monday morning, if there was even school at all but she called to put an end to those plans. Reeves' mother, Betty Jane, called for Charlie to let him know that his mother was on the phone. Charlie and Reeve had been working on an engine, so he had to wipe his hands off so he didn't make a mess of the Spencer's phone. Charlie headed into the trailer. The Spencer's trailer wasn't large. It was made even smaller by the fact that Mr. and Mrs. Spencer 
together had four sons that ranged from ages 14 to 22. But Charlie loved it. He thought it was so fun being there. There was always something going on. And the Spencers were warm people. And their sons were really nice guys. There they got to work on cars, mess around, and hang out. The Spencer trailer, located near Raccoon Lake, was like a teenage boy's paradise, which was why Charlie was annoyed with his mother when she told him that it was time to come home. I know the feeling, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. I you know I remember being a kid and my next door neighbor, my actually across the street, he was my best friend and his house always had something going on. Same like thing like this. And it's like his dad was into like music. He had a recording studio and it was like I, I loved video games. So his son had my best friend had all the video games uh, of the time. So it was just such a good time. And I never wanted to leave to the point where I had to be like dragged out. <laughs> So I get it. And that's basically what's happening here because Charlie's mother told him, listen, there's a big storm coming in and I want you to be home. But he begged her, well, if there's a big storm coming in, can I just spend one more night here and I'll come home tomorrow? It was his last ditch effort and it didn't work. No, his mother said, you're coming home tonight because come tomorrow because of the snow, you're not going to be able to drive your car. So Charlie told his mother that he'd be coming home. He said his goodbyes and thank yous to Betty and her husband, Keith. And then he went out to break the news to his friend, Reeve. He let him know that he had to go, but he promised that no matter the weather tomorrow, he would be over there after school so he could help him finish the engine that they'd been working on. Charlie Bollinger didn't know it then, but that was the luckiest phone call he would ever receive. Hours later, in the very early morning of Valentine's Day, as the snow fell around him, a 24-year-old rookie state trooper was headed home after a long shift when one more call came over his radio. The call was for the sound of shots fired near a home by Raccoon Lake. He responded that he would be headed over to the area to check it out. The officer knew that he would be the only one responding to the call for a while because he was the only trooper in the area. He also knew that this call could be anything. Someone messing around, a domestic disturbance, or potentially a home invasion. And in the past week, there had been something odd happening in the area. A series of home invasions plagued Hollinsburg and the state troopers were being very vigilant about what was happening. He recalled from his training that it was these types of calls that were the most dangerous, so he made sure to be on high alert. When the officer got to the scene, he noticed that the residence to which he was told to report was in complete darkness. And this is something that he noted as odd. The trailer was in a remote location, and there were no street lights. They weren't even near the street. So, as most homes do in rural Indiana, the residents should have a flood or security light. But nothing here had been illuminated. As the officer got closer to the residence, he saw that there was a security light on the house by the front of the stairs. But that light had been broken recently, as evident by a nearby rock and glass on the stairs. 
This was a sign of trouble. The officer knew that he had to approach the scene to ensure that the residents inside were not still in danger. So here I just want to provide a trigger warning because the next 30 seconds of this podcast will include violence against an animal. So if you would not like to hear that, please fast forward. As the officer got even closer to the house and shone a light on the ground, he saw that the family's dog, who had been tethered to an outdoor chain, was in a heap on the ground. The snow around him was bright red. He had been shot. After seeing that horrific scene, the officer knew that he would be walking into something that he was likely never to forget. He circled the perimeter of the property, checking the scene. All was eerily quiet. He found that the back door of the trailer had been busted open, so he cautiously stepped inside. He traveled as quietly as he could through the rooms while searching for signs of life. As he moved around, he felt that something kept hitting his hat. He ignored it at first, but then it kept happening, and it grew harder to ignore. Finally, when something larger dropped onto the rim of his hat, knocking it askew, he had to stop. He shone his flashlight up at the ceiling to see what was hitting him. It was blood. Blood and brain matter spattered the ceiling like a grotesque mosaic of torture. Are you kidding me? It was a a piece of skull and brain. Oh, my God. I mean, if that's how bad it is, it makes sense. Well, at first he was thinking because there was a storm, like the thought process must have been maybe there was a, a leaky roof. Right. You don't think immediately, oh, this is blood dripping from the ceiling. Exactly. And brain matter. Oh, my God. So to say the least. He was shocked. Immediately, he moved his flashlight more broadly across the room. Now he's like, I need to see what's going on here. Later, they're going to find out that both the power and phone lines had been cut. So that's why he couldn't just turn on the lights. Really? Yes. Okay. So as he moved his flashlight across the room, he saw the bodies of the Spencer family. He had walked into the aftermath of a massacre. Four men were bound before him. They had all been shot. Even if he had known them, he wouldn't have been able to identify them, though, because the gunshot wounds that they had suffered made their bodies unrecognizable. Their faces or heads had been completely shattered. That rookie officer would never forget that night. It was the worst sight that he would ever have to see. And for the rest of his life, he would have nightmares about Valentine's Day. I mean, I don't blame him. I mean, this is unbelievable that this has taken place in this trailer. It is a gruesome crime scene. The only thing is, wait, hold on. You said they they were tied up? Yes. Four bodies lying on their stomachs. And their hands were tied behind their back. Four boys. Okay. So, I mean, there are people missing here, though, right? Because where's the parents? Right. Or is one of those... Oh, you said four boys. Okay. So, yeah, the parents are missing? Parents are missing. That's weird. Yes. Well, there's a lot about this crime scene that we have left to figure out. Okay. But before we get any further, we're going to take a break here to talk about the sponsor of today's show. Okay. Let's get back to that crime scene. 
So as backup responded to the scene, because obviously after seeing that he's going to, after definitely securing the trailer first and making sure the person or persons who did this weren't in the trailer, the rookie officer is going to, he's going to request some backup. Yeah, it's a good idea. So as backup is responding to the scene, they notice that an ambulance sped past. The ambulance was not headed for the trailer. They knew that because everyone at the scene was clearly dead, so they hadn't called for one. The ambulance was headed to the next property over. And if the young state trooper would have entered the house from the front of the trailer, he would have seen a troubling sight. A blood trail. A blood trail that traveled from the scene of the murders to a neighbor's house. A blood trail that signified the strength that only a mother could muster when she was trying to get justice for her children. Because Betty Jane Spencer had survived the tragedy that befell her family. Are you serious? Yes. She'd gone to the neighbor's house. And it was actually the neighbors that had made the first phone call. So there are going to be two 911 calls that are placed that night by the neighbors. The first was, hey, we heard a whole bunch of shots over at our neighbor's property. And like it was more than just like the boys messing around. Like it seemed like something weird is going on there. So that was their first phone call. And then Betty Jane arrives at their front door pounding on it, begging for help at 1 a.m. So then they call 911 again and say, we need an ambulance because our neighbors like just showed up at our property. Now, that's terrifying for many reasons, obviously. Yeah. But one of the ones that I would be afraid of and now new fear unlocked um, is someone's banging at your door at 1 a.m. and someone's trying to kill them. And she's saying that her family has been shot. And can you know? Can you let me in? I need help. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Like, obviously, you do it. But like, well, you, you always say that you would do it. Right. But then, like, you know, sometimes your own self preservation takes over, and you don't want to let them in. Because let me tell you something. This is a sad reality of being a teacher in America right now. Mm-hmm. But when we do the training for like school shootings, they actually train us like. If there's a student pounding on your door to get in, you can't let them in because there have been cases where the shooter is holding a student at gunpoint and having them beg for you to let them in. So now like it's like I I, that it makes me want to cry even thinking about it. But it's like you have a student who say, you you know, any any kids like a 15 year old is begging to come into the door during a school shooting and you're not allowed to open that door. Right. Because there's so much now risk involved and now you're threatening everyone else in the room, which is the same thing if someone wants to come to your house. Right. What do you do if you had kids that are even, you know, like babies, you're putting everyone in here at risk as well. So that's a very tricky situation. And, you know, at first I would be like, yeah, come on in, like, you know, hurry up, grab the phone. Let's let's do what we have to do. But I see what you're saying. Right. Like you, depending on what side of the door you're on, you know, you're hoping that someone opens up and helps you. But on the other side of the door, you're like, well, am I putting my family at risk too? It's like, a, it's a terrifying situation. It really is. So they they do let Betty in. And I would like to think that we would say. I think we would. Neighbors, if you're listening, 
We'll let you in. Yeah, we'll let you in. We'll let you in. Um, so the blood trail was bright red in the snow. And that's what I said when I meant like there's more to find out about this crime scene. I mean, this story is just unbelievable. So according to the police scanner, the records of when all these calls came in, when the neighbors called 911 to say that Betty had arrived at their house, that was when the state trooper was just arriving at the trailer to check the scene. That's interesting. Yeah. So it was like, as he arrived, the crime was literally still in motion, basically. Right. And there could have been a possibility that he could have came upon her going from one house to the other if he got there a few minutes early. And if he entered from the other way, because the way that you enter the trailer is technically from behind, the front of it's kind of like around the other side. I see what you're saying. And there's also a possibility that he might have even passed the killers on the way out. I mean, there is a possibility of that. Because also, I think the location's a little interesting as far as, like, it's off the beaten path, like you said. There's no, like... Yeah, very remote. Right. So it's like, whoever did this had to have known that they were there um, and, like, I don't know, maybe canvassed that area to know how many people were inside. There's so many things to think about when you start to, to do that. Right. Well, eventually, after Betty was cared for at the hospital... And her wounds were dressed, and she filled in her panic and grief-stricken husband about what had happened to their beautiful boys. She was asked to recall the story one more time for the detectives. Betty did not mind telling the story again. She was a strong woman. The men who did this to her family were emblazoned in her mind, and they would be there forever. She wanted them caught. And she wanted them to pay for what they had done. And so her story began. She had been in the living room that night with her son, Greg, who was 22 years old. Her stepsons, Reeve, 16, Ralph, 14, were sleeping in the next room. Her 17-year-old stepson, Raymond, and her husband, Keith, were away at work. Now, although those boys were her stepsons, the younger ones, she made no qualms about it that they were her boys too. She was a mother. She was their mother. That's really sweet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As they were watching the movie, the house went dark because the power was cut. At first, she thought that maybe the power had gone out because of the weather. Now, remember, there was supposed to be like a crazy storm that night. It ended up not being as crazy as everyone thought it was, but it was definitely snowing. Then they heard um, loud noises, and presumably that was the light being knocked out, and you guys know what else. I won't recall it. Then she said four men burst in through the back door, and they were screaming at her. Then she said four men burst in through the back door, and they were screaming at her and Greg to get down on the floor. Get your faces down, they kept screaming. Betty said that she clung on to her son, Greg, terrified as two of the men ransacked the home for anything of value. And the other two men went into the room of her two younger sons to grab them out of bed. They brought them down on the ground besides her and her eldest son. As the boys were having their hands tied behind their backs, For a short time, Betty was brought into her bedroom 
where they told her to show them where like her valuables were, but they really didn't have any. So then she was brought back out into the living room. Betty pleaded with the men, please don't hurt my boys. As one of the men was yelling at her to shut up, they were silenced by a noise coming from outside the trailer. As one of the men was yelling at her to shut up, they were silenced by a noise coming from outside the trailer. Betty said her heart sunk. It could be her son, Raymond. He was supposed to be coming home from work. So she yelled out, Raymond, is that you? There was no response. The men were silent, waiting to see how this was going to go down. She yelled again, Raymond, is that you? Yes, he called back, confused. She began to yell, most likely for him to run. But the men were faster. They went outside and grabbed the 17-year-old boy and yanked him inside and brought him down to the ground next to his brother's and tied his hands behind his back like everyone else's had been. Betty said that there was one man who seemed to be in control. Once Raymond was tied up on the ground, he motioned to the other men, a motion that indicated to her that he wanted them to shoot the family. Nothing happened immediately, and then he said it. He gave the order for them to open fire, and they did. Betty said that she heard the gunfire all around her. It was like flashes of lightning and deafening thunder rumbling through her home, stealing away everything she loved in this world. She watched on as all of her children were shot. A storm had certainly hit them that night, but not the one they had been expecting. At one point, she heard her son Greg beside her, yelling out in agony as he was blasted with the bullets from the men's sawed-off shotguns. She thought she heard him say, as his body was riddled with pellets, I'm flying. Oh God, I'm flying. Because Greg had been yelling so loudly, she said the man that she assumed to be the leader of this group straddled his body, grabbed him by his ponytail, and fired a shotgun into the back of his head, basically spraying the entire room with his face, she said. This is horrible. Yeah. She said that because she was next to him, that she felt the life drain from him, and like his yelling immediately stopped. She then said she heard more gunfire, and she felt her flesh burning in her shoulder and into her back. It was her turn. She waited for death to wash over her, and she thought she would be with her children. But death did not come for Betty. She explained to the detectives that she was angry. That she was so angry because she wanted to die too, because she wanted to be with her boys. She lay there, and she thought if she wasn't going to die, then she wanted to get justice for them. That thought resonated with her. That and of Keith. She lay on the ground as still as possible. Betty could hear the blood pouring from the bodies of her sons. Imagine hearing that. No, I can't. And one by one, the men started walking down the line and kicking the family members to see if they were dead. 
And by the time the one man got to her, before she could even think, you know, like how she should react to him doing that, her foot involuntarily kicked back when he hit her. Okay. Like a spasm almost? Yeah. Okay. And that's when they knew that she was alive. He was like, hold on, hold on, this one's alive. So the voice of the leader was heard. Killer, he said to someone. Betty felt another man walk up to her right in front of her. And she heard a shot. He had aimed at her and made contact. They watched as the top of Betty's head flew off. Afterwards, they all ran off into the night, leaving utter devastation in their wake. But Betty, she wasn't dead. The men did not know that she had been wearing a wig. Wait, so they, oh, they thought. They blew the top of her head off. Yes. But it was her wig coming off. They did graze the top of her head. Of course. But they knocked her wig off. And it was probably dark as well, so they thought. Yep. Wow. Okay. Wild, right? This is crazy. This is so sad because this poor woman has watched her children die right in front of her and then has attacked herself and left for dead. Yeah. You know, and and I think what makes this a little bit more eerie than other cases that we've maybe covered is just because there's been other massacres that have happened, but everyone died. Here we have someone that lived through one. Yeah. And now you really truly understand when these things happen how bad it is. Like how really bad it is. Like an eyewitness account of that. I think that's a really good point to make. Like when you have Velisca or the Ketty Cabin murders, like even what happened with the Manson family or any family massacre, you're like, wow, this is the chaos that existed. Or even just what we covered with the Brandy Peters case, like the ones that aren't like living in infamy. Right. This is the devastation and chaos that these poor people experienced as they had to watch their family members die around them. Right. Because I think that we could talk about it. Anyone can talk about it and like know what the crime scene looks like and things like that. But there is a depth that is never really reached Unless yeah. there's a survivor that's telling the story and has a recollection right. of that story. Like so this, this is chilling to like the bone. Right. Like the things that she heard Greg saying, like I'm flying. And then she heard the blood pouring from her son's bodies. Like, oh my God. Yeah. This is wild. Really sad. So once she knew that all the men had gone, Betty got the strength to stand up. She had excruciating pain in her shoulder, back, and the top of her head where she had been shot. She tried to get to the phone, but when she did, she realized that the men must have cut the power in the phone lines. So she had no phone. She would have to make it to her neighbor's house to get help. She was in shock, but she had one goal. One thought kept ringing in her ears, that she had to get justice for the boys. She had to tell the police, and she thought, like, what if I bleed to death? So that's why she had the sense of urgency. She stumbled out into the cold, snowy night, leaving behind her a bright red trail of blood in the pure white snow. Betty walked half a mile with no shoes on, 
Eventually, she made it to her neighbor's house. She pounded on the door and screamed for help. They did. From there, they called to get her an ambulance. They told her that they had already called the police before she got there, so that the police should be at the house. But she knew it was going to be of no help because her sons, they were dead already. She was freezing and in shock from blood loss. It was incredible that she had been shot like she was at such close range and she had the strength to get to the neighbor's house. The neighbors who helped her said they were in just as much shock when they saw her pounding on their door, completely covered in blood. The morning following the massacre, the news of what had happened the night before spread like wildfire around the community. It sent shockwaves that still reverberate through the town every time Valentine's Day rolls around. Charlie Bollinger learned what had happened at his friend's house from a classmate. He had said something to his friend about Reeve not being in school that day. And his friend said to him, you haven't heard what happened? And he told Charlie that the whole family had been murdered. Charlie said that he didn't believe it. He said that couldn't be true because I just saw everybody the day before, yesterday. It had to be a different family that it happened to. But it hadn't been. Charlie was devastated by the loss of his friend and such an amazing family. One that he felt like he was a part of. But he was even more unnerved by the fact that it could have been him too. It's very true. I mean, because he was going to spend the night there, and if his mother would have let him, I mean, that could have been him too. He would have been dead. Which is another reason why I have another fear that I didn't know that I had. Now that I have to think about when I have kids one day, do I let the kids stay over someone else's house? Sleepovers are now Uh, controversial. Yeah. And having been to many in my life, I understand why. (laughs) You know, I have to tell you, my parents didn't let me. They didn't let you sleep over? No, never. Oh, my dad was like, get out of the house. I, I mean, maybe one time or two max. Okay. And it was right across the street. <laughs> so it's close. It was close. But yeah, they didn't like sleepovers. We were parents. never allowed to be the sleepover house. It was like, you can go to one, but nobody's staying here. Oh, yeah. we could, uh, That wouldn't have been good either. Like, so like, I think my family just did not like sleepovers. I feel like when we have kids, I'll feel safe being the sleepover house. Although people might not want their kids to sleep over our house because we're true crime people. But not everybody knows that. They're going to think we're weirdos. You think that? What if they find out? And they're like, oh, you're not allowed to play with those kids. Oh, my God. They talk about bad things, evil things. Yeah. Like it could be. For real. What if they actually do think that? Oh, new fear unlocked. Oh, well. Oh, well. well I guess sorry, our kids, kids. I guess our kids aren't going to have friends. <laughs> actually, probably better that way. <laughs> okay. So from her hospital bed, Betty was able to work with a sketch artist and give the investigators four sketches to work with. She guaranteed that those were the men that had murdered her family. Their faces would be burned in her memory forever. And she had done a great job. The sketches were detailed and impressive. The detectives believed that they would get calls about them soon because the second they released this to the public... Like, these weren't, like, vague sketches. These were the people. This wasn't, like, when they do a sketch and you're like, smiley face. come on, dude. Like, yeah. Like, what? Right. But the detectives knew 
that this was going to be a complicated one to solve. Based on Betty's story, it seemed like there was no motive. The men burst into the home in the middle of the night. They ransacked the house, but they didn't take anything. They weren't looking for anything specific. They just executed the family. So they were kind of wondering and going down the avenue of why. Could somebody have a vendetta against one of the parents, one of the boys? But this did seem a little professional to them. I agree. The only thing I actually had a question about, actually, uh, Kay, was where was the husband here? He was at work. He worked nights. Okay. Because you're right. It does sound professional. I think they're onto something because for them to cut the power, to know where those people were located, it was a tucked in, um, you know, house that, you know, wouldn't have been seen just by driving past the street. So yeah. this had to be something that was planned and it was executed you know, to the most efficient way, you know, and they left, they tried to leave nobody alive. Right. So this is, seems a little professional. Maybe the husband owed money or I guess the possibilities and the rabbit hole is endless. Well, don't forget when I first like introduced the, the rookie officer, there had been for the past week, series of home invasions. There was no murders, but the police were thinking, could this be connected? Could it be? to use it to their advantage. Like you're saying, like, pull off these home invasions, and then so that'll be distracting against, like, our real targets? A possibility, yeah. Okay. Well, guess what? What? I'm going to switch things up this episode. Okay. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Tell me. The man responsible for it all, the guy everyone in the county was now looking for, he was hiding right under their noses. 23-year-old Roger Drollinger sat in a courtroom on February 15th, the very next day. The guy who did this showed up for court the next day. Calm, cool, collected, like he hadn't just been the one who orchestrated the murder of an entire family. But what was the reason? We'll get there. So Drollinger had been charged with many drug-related offenses, including trafficking and selling to an undercover police officer. Because of his past record, he had been facing some serious jail time, 40 to 50 years to be exact. So while every law enforcement officer was out looking for this guy, he was in the Park County Courthouse next to a lot of officers. How wild is that? That is wild, actually. So I know what you're asking. Why? Why would he do this? Unfortunately, this case is as senseless as it is tragic. There is no why, just a who. And that who is Roger Drollinger. Drollinger was a bad man. He was raised in a wealthy family in the nearby community of Waynetown. But he had grown up to be the local drug dealer. Drollinger had control over a ragtag group of criminals. One newspaper called them his own band of vicious degenerates. To these men, Drollinger was their powerful and charismatic leader. It was almost like he had gathered a cult of criminals. 
They listened to everything he said, and they wanted to desperately impress him and do right by him. To make matters worse, Drollinger was obsessed with and felt inspired by the crimes of Charles Manson. He one day wanted his name and Manson's name to be uttered in the same breath. It was a recipe for disaster. So this guy's just doing it for the clout, trying to like be up with the the worst people possible. And because it excites him. That's ridiculous and disgusting. Mm-hmm. Well, in the week leading up to the murders of the Spencer family, Drollinger and his three followers had committed numerous home invasions. Okay. They, All right, so we're getting somewhere. Yep, they had been the ones to do it. Yeah. They liked to terrorize their victims. At first, it would just be like a ransacking of their homes. They would tie up the residents and steal what they could. But as the home invasions went on, they got more violent. The residents would be beaten and toyed with. And Drollinger loved it. It was exciting for him to cause pain to others. Drollinger lacked empathy, guilt, and had a very egocentric way of thinking. Traits that would later cause him to be diagnosed as a psychopath. For the other men in his group, the home invasions were enough. They got high off the thrill of the crimes. In their lives, they felt powerless, lost, and worthless. But when they were terrorizing those people, for once they felt like they had the power. It was fun for them. Plus, they saw it as a bonus that they would get money and sometimes find pot. But for Drollinger, it was never enough. And as his court date loomed closer and closer, he knew he would not be able to do that stuff anymore. Inflicting pain on others for his excitement, it was his high, and he craved a larger high. And this is why we saw an escalation in violence in the home invasions. And that's what brings us to the murder of the Spencer family. Drollinger was supposed to report to court the next day, where he could possibly go to jail for decades. So this was going to be Drollinger's last thrill. And this time, it'd be a thrill kill. I do find it very interesting that they did escalate as far as they did so quickly. Well, they wanted to impress him. They wanted yeah. to do everything for him. He was giving them a sense of belonging, like very similar to that of a cult leader, was he picked these people because they were easily influenced and because they were going to listen to everything that he said. I mean, he, although they are criminals and murderers, they were controlled, coercively controlled by him. And... Drollinger is just that. He's a psychopath. So his whole goal was to eventually kill, to be a murderer. But he had to get those other men to that point, right? which is why he did the slow escalation through the home invasions. See, but someone like him is actually incredibly scary because I think that he was able to look at these people that he was gathering, look for the weaknesses and exploit them. I think that's probably the scariest thing because you have people that might not go to that kind of extent or even imagine doing something like that, but he can convince someone through a flaw of their character alone. Right. 
And he's only 23 years old doing this. That's insane. Well, on February 13th, Drollinger had driven past the Spencer trailer. And there he saw many cars parked. If you remember, there was one extra car there, too, because Reeve had his friend sleeping over. Well, because there were so many cars there, Drollinger thought that the trailer would be the perfect place to hit because there were so many people to kill. How crazy is that? Usually criminals scout out easy locations. This man is seriously trying to find a home with the most victims as possible. I mean, it's sick and twisted, but he has numbers of his own. Right. And he's probably thinking, this is off the beaten path. If I do it, I'll, I'll probably get away with it. Right. So he told his crew what he wanted to do. And they had all agreed to do it with him. Now, I'm not taking responsibility away from the other men because they do have control over what they do. And they did choose to do this with him. But Drollinger was a bit nervous that the men, when it came down to it, were going to back down and not help him fulfill his thrill killer fantasy. So he made them all take a blood oath that they will vow all to commit murder that night that all of them will fire their sawed-off shotguns at the victims. As they swore their oath, Drollinger told them, either you kill or get killed. Oh, wow. So he took it to the most extreme that he could take it. Right. To further ensure that these murders took place, Drollinger insisted that none of the men put bandanas over their faces. For all the previous home invasions, they'd all worn bandanas, and that's how they weren't identified. But he told the men that this time it doesn't matter if they see you, because we're going to kill them. I see. So he's just making sure that what he wants to get done will get done, because at the end of the day, it has to. I also think it has a little bit to do with the fact that he knows that regardless if he doesn't get caught for this, he's going away for decades. Exactly. So I, I, you know, I think it's more of his egotistical mind thinking more about himself than anything else. Than these guys. Yeah. Right. As the men drove away from the devastation that they left in their wake, the other three men that had been with him that night, Michael Wright, David Smith, and Daniel Stonebreaker, said that Drollinger was high on what happened. He relived the moments of all of the victims' death with relish, and he was excited about all of the blood spatter that he had on his clothing. But his complete victory was short-lived when the group heard over the police scanner that they had that Betty had survived. That's how they found out? Yep. Oh, my God. this is scary. Because Drollinger didn't know that Betty had gone to the neighbor's house, she, she, they heard on the police scanner that one state trooper was going to respond to the shots fired. So... In Drollinger's mind, he thought the one state trooper showed up and found Betty alive. So for a moment, he said, let's turn around and kill them both, meaning kill Betty and the state trooper. Right. But then he was like, no, forget it. There's probably backup on the way already. So he decided not to. But he was going to go back and kill them both. That is certainly one scenario. But think about this, too. Think about if they heard it on the scanner, they could have turned around and then saw the trail leading to the neighbor's house, and they could have carried it out there as well. They could have continued their warpath to the neighbor's house. They could have. To take out everybody that would have 
been a witness to it or or whatever you want to call it. And that would have been really sad. And that would have been even worse. And a reason why there's so, cause for pause when someone yeah, comes knocking on your door. Exactly. So Roger Drollinger ended the night by returning to the home that he shared with his wife and three children and getting some sleep. Because after all, he did have court in the morning. At his hearing, Drollinger was found guilty, but avoided prompt incarceration. So he was found guilty, but they're like, we won't arrest him yet. And there's a reason for it. He had been sentenced to 25 to 40 years, but was allowed to get his affairs in order with his children and then turn himself in. This is something he was able to do because he was out on bond. His father had put up the family farm as collateral so he could be free during the trial to spend time with his children before he went to prison. But instead, Roger Drollinger was committing violent B&Es and a quadruple homicide. While he's waiting for trial. Yes. So after the sentencing, the four men met up again, and Drollinger instructed them all to go into hiding because of the sketches. They were a very accurate representation of them all. Drollinger himself skipped town and went on the run to hell with his family, I guess. Yeah, and his dad's farm as well. Yeah. So, great. So all of the men left the state of Indiana, all of them except for Daniel Stonebreaker, who is just, well, I guess it's, this is what I always have to say. It's good that criminals are stupid. Right. That is one saving grace that we have. We can relish in that fact. Yes. Stonebreaker completely blew everyone's cover by bragging to one of his friends that he had been there when the murders were committed. But it wasn't his friend that told on him. When Stonebreaker was telling his friend the story, the man sitting next to them at the bar was an undercover police officer. Good. Good, <laughs> good for us, because, you know, we need a win here. You know, yeah. this has been a terrible crime against this family, uh, you know, and so much loss involved. Good. I'm glad that... We get a win here, and the cop heard the conversation. Yes, I'm glad too. Well, he heard the whole conversation, and Stonebreaker was arrested. As soon as he was done with the story about the murders, he was brought in to State Trooper headquarters, and he was interrogated. They had him. And he had basically already confessed, and he looked just like one of the men in the sketches. He caved, and he confessed to it all. He gave away the names of his accomplices and why they did it, just for the thrill of it all. Stonebreaker admitted that they had waited for Keith Spencer to leave for work so the family would be more vulnerable. That's so sad. They then cut the phone wire. They hit the light with the rock, and then they burst through the door. After the confession charges were brought against Drollinger and the other two men, Michael Wright and David Smith, and a national manhunt began. Because if you remember, the men left the state. Yeah. Wright and Smith were quickly found and arrested, but Drollinger was able to evade police detection. In April of 1977, almost two months of him being on the run, Drollinger concocted another way that he could gain further notoriety by making a spectacle of his surrender. 
Drollinger, along with his family's lawyer, called a press conference. He wanted attention and he wanted to be a national figure, like his idol, Charles Manson. With dozens of cameras pointed on him, Drollinger sat next to his wife, who was cradling their youngest child, obviously in an attempt to make him look like a family man. And it was there that he declared his innocence and surrendered to the police. In all of their trials, Betty Jane Spencer got her wish. The reason why she fought so hard, she got to testify at all of their trials. She looked them in the eye and pointed to them as she told the jury that it was them, that they were the ones who had killed her boys, her beautiful boys. When she identified Roger Drollinger at his trial, she pointed at him and she looked at him, saying it was him. And he said to her, you bitch. During the trial. Seriously? Yes. Okay, I hope you're telling me that something good's coming for all these people. Well, I I <sighs> just think that's, although that's such a horrific thing for him to do, I'm so glad that he did it. Because in that moment, Betty won. Like, she got to him. Yes. You know? Yes. So I like that he revealed that, that she got one over on him there. She was able to flip it and like weaponize it yep. in her favor, which is so good. Yeah. And although he took everything from her, in that moment, she took everything from him. That's exactly right. Yep. And everybody there got to see the real him right there. Yes. I mean, I really think they got to see the real real him when he called for a press conference, but yeah. you know what you what know what loser. I mean. <laughs> yeah. In the end, all four men were given life sentences for their crimes. Good. On January 29th, 2014, Roger Drollinger was found dead in his cell at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility. He was said to have died from natural causes. He was in a maximum security prison, and because of like incidents with other inmates, he um, lived alone. Because I guess he had had a lot of run-ins with other people, as you can imagine, because he's a, he's a crazy person. Right. David Smith and Daniel Stonebreaker are housed at the Pendleton Correctional Facility. And Michael Wright is housed at the Pendleton Treatment Unit for uh, mental health reasons. In 2001, David Smith gave an interview with the Journal Review in which he recounted his version of what happened that night. In it, he stated that Drollinger had a sick control over them, that they hadn't wanted to murder those people, and that they felt as if they had to. He also said that he was firing above the family and that when Drollinger saw him do that, he forced his gun down, which was when Betty had gotten shot in the shoulder. But, I mean, we can't be sure of his account for a few reasons. First, he's completely downplaying the role that he played in the murders, and that's something that we commonly see with criminals especially when they're involved in group crimes, that when they go on to make these confessions, they're going to always try and minimize their own role. And it's also 24 years after the event. So memory isn't the best. Sometimes what the mind does to preserve itself and as a, you know, just a defense mechanism is we do also minimize our roles in some of the bad things that happen in our lives. I agree. So... 
That I don't know about, but I did include, I will include in the show notes a link to the interview that he gave with the the journal there. Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of of any of that, I mean, they can make all the statements that they want. I mean, they were all involved in a heinous act where an entire family was butchered. Yeah. In a in a house for no reason at all. And they knew that that was the plan. It wasn't like this is another home invasion where no one else had died. Like Jolinger made it very clear we're killing everybody in this house. Right. There's no information um, to suggest that they were there for one thing and then all of a, all of a sudden Dillinger said, all right, go ahead, shoot them. I'm telling you to shoot them. And they're like, right. what? I thought we're here to steal things. Like it's not even like that. Correct. At all. Right. Betty Jane Spencer went on to become a victim rights activist and eventually was honored at a special White House ceremony by President Ronald Reagan. She died with 80 pellets still lodged in her body from that horrific night in 2004 of natural causes. It's really sad. I am glad that she was an activist, and I'm glad that she was able to get justice for her her children, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I know she's passed away now, but I'm, I'm glad at least she's with her family now again like she wanted to. Do. You know, it's really sad. Yeah, it yeah. is. That's a rough one, right? Oh, yeah. Like, that is just so wild that I think that to have an account, like you said, I think that's the biggest thing to pull from it. Because now moving forward, when we do talk about these family massacres or even like a family annihilator situation, now we know the chaos of the scene. Yeah, which I don't think a lot of us really understand. Right. Uh, I mean, you can never truly understand, but what I mean is the insight into that. Yes. I don't think we have always get the best picture of that, but here we do, you know. And it's worse than we could have ever imagined. 100%. And I think the last thing I want to say, too, because we didn't really talk about it, but I think that, you know, this as horrible and tragic as it was for Betty to witness everything that she witnessed and, you know, and all of that, you also have to think about the husband, too. I mean, he... I mean, to think that he might feel responsible because he left and he did his responsibility to go to work and they took advantage of that. That he wasn't there. And now he must feel this overwhelming guilt that not only did he lose all his children, but also what happened to Betty in the process too. So I think that must be hard as well. I'm sure both of them had felt that way and felt a certain amount of survivor's guilt. Yeah. But her determination to seek justice for her kids... It just, it speaks volumes to like the love and, oh, yeah. you know, as a mother, you know. It's intense. It's very emotional. It is. Okay. Well, before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to our newest supporters on Patreon. We hope you're enjoying all of the extra episodes. And if you want two bonus episodes of this podcast twice a month, you can go to patreon.com slash true crime couple. So we want to say thank you so much to Kelton Niels. Rachel, Ashley, Adila, Hope Rose, Brandy Willett, Kathleen, Mary Glaze, Ariel Tolk, Beatrice Salcedo, Amanda Armsworthy, Courtney Yoon, Kylie Cruz, Irene Izquierdo, Tamika Porter, Carly Gottsall, Tamara Henley, Jennifer Whitaker, Gabby, Megan Pollock, Kelly Buffone up to her pledge, Katie Natasha, Susan Trimble, Abigail Oak, 
Josh Peters, Desiree Marsh, Frankie, Mad Raps and Signage, Marnie, Amy Eaton, Alexis Clark, Bridget, Chrissy King, Amanda Sapansky, Michelle, and Monica. Thank you guys so much for joining. And again, we hope you're enjoying. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.